So what's the objective of today? What's going to be your return on investment? Finance is a very important part of our lives, as we know. Many people lack the basics of a financial education, and I can attest to that because when I was growing up, I was taught to save, but I wasn't taught much else. Uh, we want today to be a time of equipping all of you. So we titled this, Getting Your House in Order. Money, as we know, is important. Jesus spoke more about money than any other subject. And if it was important to Jesus, it should be important to everyone who follows him. So to help us, we brought together a very sophisticated team of people who are very capable of doing just that. They're gonna share from their years of industry experience. So the format's gonna be each speaker will uh, share, give a presentation, and then at the end, we're gonna open up the floor for you guys to come up and ask some questions. So starting us off is Mr. Sean Garrett, and Sean is a relationship manager and area manager for J.P. Morgan Chase. Sean has experience in banking, strategic planning, financial analysis, and risk management, amongst many other things. Let's welcome Sean Garrett. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So first, uh, I want to give honor to God for, for an opportunity to be here. Um, I want to thank uh, the pastors, Pastor Keith and Paul Pettis, for inviting us to come out and, and for the team, obviously, to, for coming along. So I'm just, just to kind of piggyback um, from where um, my brother uh, left off, I'm just going to touch a little bit on, uh, on a couple of things. I'm not sure of, of, of your understanding or, or background in finance, so I'm just going to touch on a few things and, and I'll wait more for the questions. But um, given the current climate, and what I mean climate of uh, the, the industry, the, the economy um, today, so I'm going to say my belief. My belief is we're heading towards a recession. And um, we're probably overdue. Um, in, in some cases, but heading towards a recession, there's a number of reasons why um, different economists would believe that. And so that being said, the timing of this is, is very critical. And so um, when asked to come, there are different aspects of finances, and, and as we go through, you'll see, right, so there's a legal aspect, the investment, right, the taxes, and how do they all um, coincide, how do you connect the dots? So. The, what I'm going to, I'm just going to mention a, a small piece right now and, and I'll hand it over because I really want to leave time for questions because I want to really understand what your thoughts are, what's pressing in your life and how we can, we can, we can um, help, help you in those areas. So what I am going to talk about, and just stick with, in finance, the five C's of what we call credit, five C's of credit. And the reason why I think this is critical is because in a recession, what happens is recession, right? So there's a bit to recede, right? So the money doesn't actually go away; it just kind of goes other places. And I, I just want to, just want you to see it a little bit different. So, so my, myself included, but I know a lot of people that did very well in the last recession. A lot of people suffered, and a lot of people did very well in the last recession. So, if you want to use the analogy of musical chairs. So the music is playing. Now when music stops, some people don't have a chair. So that's what happens in the recession. The music is playing right now, 
but there's some people that realize that the music is going to stop playing shortly. So they're positioning themselves to get a chair. And some of those chairs could be some of your houses. <laughs> that could be their chair. And so I know a lot of doctors who are part-time doctors because they're full-time property managers because they own a lot of real estate right now. They've built their portfolio during the last recession because they were able to buy property on fire sales. Um, so, so you want to be really careful in preparing for it. I'm not saying this is a scare tactic. It's just, it's just how it works. And so a recession is like a market res it, it reset, right? So it, you know, the, it, it's bad and everything seems good. It's not good, so let's, let's reset it. I'm going back into the five C's of credit. I can go further, but five C's of credit. So the first one being character. First one is character, and basically that's your personal credit history, right? And so if if you don't know someone and they say, "Hey man, can I borrow ten dollars?" Probably your first inclination is no, right? But let's say it's a cousin. So maybe you might lend your cousin some money, but you're not sure. So what what are you gonna ask? What's one of the questions you're gonna ask? Like, can I borrow ten dollars? What are you gonna ask? What you want the money for? What's another question? Can I get it back? Can I get back? So just take a look at that one. Credit is up. What you want the money for? When you want to get it back? So your character, your credit history kind of says that. It kind of says how, they, what's the likelihood that you're going to pay me back? So historically, you don't pay people back, so I'm not going to keep money. Historically, you pay people back, so I have more of a chance to pay you. You're going to have to lend your money. See, if you just see that concept, I'm just kind of simplifying it for you. And then what do you want the money for, right? And in the event that you don't pay me back, what's my collateral? So those are the things that we look at, right? So character is your credit history for the most part. So the credit history, God bless you, speaks to, speaks to how you manage money. Next, we're going to go into uh, cash flow. We're going to, uh, we're going to cash flow. Because cash flow basically says that it speaks of how you can pay me back, right? So if if you're going to borrow a dollar, typically a bank wants to see that you can pay back a dollar twenty. Not a dollar. In some cases, dollar for dollar, but typically about a dollar twenty, dollar twenty-five. Why? Because in the event that something happens, there's some cushion, right? So if you want a dollar, you have to show the ability to pay back a dollar twenty. Right. Um, the next is capacity, which kind of ties into capacity, your ability to repay a loan, um, which which also could be the liquidity, right? And, and and when we get to pitch up, so we can speak about that. What's your your net worth? Right. It speaks to um, your avail available cash or access to cash that you currently have. Another one would be collateral. One of the best forms of collateral, obviously, is real estate. Why? This bottle is not a good form of collateral. Why? Now you see it, now you don't. It's very easy to move. So, it's kind of hard to move this building. It's better collateral. I can see it, I can touch it anytime I want to. So, like, um, we, 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 some banks, we don't like to lend to jewelers. Why? Because it's very valuable. And you can't find it, right? So we want to come with, okay, where's my collateral? Oh, yeah, he took it down the block, right? So, right? so, so the collateral is not a safe, safe collateral. And so uh, real estate becomes one of the, the best forms of collateral. So 
normally banks will let auto loan because of, obviously you can drive the car, but because of insurance, motor vehicles, a little bit difficult to hide the car, right? And so it's another form of collateral. There are other forms of equipment, there are other forms of collateral, but um, collateral is huge. So in the event that you don't pay me back, do I have something of equal value that I can take? It's collateral. And the last a condition. It's condition. So condition is interesting because conditions have to do with where I started, the economy, the industry, what's happening. So I'll give you an example. Everybody wants to lend to doctors. Remember I said that. Why? Because the belief is A, there's always a need for doctor. B, they make a lot of money, right? C, there's a lot of government regulation. And so by default, a lot of people want to lend to doctors. So the industry that they're in makes it favorable for us to lend to them. However, remember I talked about music starting and stopping? As the economy changes, conditions will change our appetite and how much we want to lend. So when you're looking to purchase again, you have timing is really critical. If you wait too long, you can't get access to the money. But our current administration pulling down interest rates, that's to give access to money. It gives us easier access to money. So basically what you're doing is you're buying money. How much does the money cost? The money costs 4%. So you're buying money when you're, when you're borrowing money. So the cost of money is lower right now to give those who have the ability to use the money effectively during the recession to get access to the money. The music will stop, the rates will go back up, and when the market resets and property becomes available, those who have access to the money, who got access to money at a low interest rate, will now purchase the money. When you come out of a recession, they'll buy the property at a lower value and will appreciate faster and make a lot of money. So you see the cycle? And then it'll reset in another 10 to 15 years. So that's the normal cycle. I'm going to stop there because I see smoke coming out of your ears again. You guys are thinking that I love that, all right? So, but there's a lot that my brothers are going to share. But I just wanted to kind of set set, set the ground ground from there, okay? Thanks for your time. Amen. Amen. That was awesome. A lot of helpful nuggets there. He opened my eyes to a lot of things. So uh, next up, uh, we have a uh, Mr. Don Henry. And Don has experience in the areas of tax and budgeting. Don is a member of Memorial Presbyterian Church in Roosevelt for 25 years, where he is a deacon, usher, and church accountant. Don is the chief financial officer of the charter school in Hempstead, New York. He is also the managing member of ADSB, a firm that specializes in financial and tax planning. He's also a member of the Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the New York Society of Certified Public Accountants. Let's welcome Don Mitchell. That's it. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for inviting us. So I want this to be very engaging, all right? So this, my topic is budgeting. And I believe budgeting is a key to what I consider uh, is financial empowerment. So, by a show of hands, who uses a written budget every month? 
Okay, good. For those who do not use a written budget every month, I encourage you to start. And I would ask you not just to start for yourselves, but for the youngest member of your household, that becomes a habit. Because at the end of the day, that will allow you to be able to manage your income and expenses in a way that allows you to have some excess funds that you can then do the things that the other brothers are going to talk about. Buying a house, investing in stocks and bonds, leaving some money behind so your family can inherit um, your assets. That's pretty important. And so from my perspective, a key ingredient to financial empowerment is budgeting. So with that said, Savannah, if you could put it on the screen, I'm going to just kind of run through a quick um, PowerPoint slide. Yeah. Perfect. All right, so budgeting tips. On to the next page. Um, listen, my acronym is PEER. In Jamaica, we would call that avocado. All right, it's PEER in Jamaica. All right, P-E-A-R, and the acronym stands for PLAN. Execute, account, and report. And I want you guys to take as much notes as you possibly because I guarantee you're gonna get some nuggets that I, I think are gonna be useful from each of these gentlemen on the podium here. So let's talk about plan. So plan, here are the things I do. I first prepare a plan annually. Every year I go through the plan, right? And I update the plan monthly. So I'm in October, the beginning of the month, we look at what we set up back in December, and we look at it and say, okay, is this still realistic? Is the income I projected at the beginning of the year is pretty much what's gonna happen now that October has started? Are the expenses still realistic? And the two key things about planning that I must encourage you to do is one, you have to be intentional. You have to be deliberate. This is what we're going to do in the story. And number two, you've got to be disciplined. Because if this is going to work, you really have to kind of stick to it. A lot of folks prepare plans, and before you know it, you know, they're off to a vacation for $9,000, but it's not even in the budget. Yeah. And now you're in trouble. So I just want to make sure we're clear on that. Intentional and discipline. And when I identify multiple revenue sources, I was listening to the news recently and uh, they were talking about families who are having difficult times in the Appalachian uh, area of our country and both husband and wife were unemployed. And the reason was they were both employees of the same coal mining company. And they both got laid off at the same time and had no income to then support the family. And so you want to identify different revenue streams. You may have a W-2 income, you're an employee, you identify some annuity um, income, you identify rental income, maybe you have a certain gift that allows you to do some things online. It's important that you try to diversify your revenue stream so that if any one revenue disappears for whatever reason, you're not depending on just that one source of income. Target and net income goal. So the month of October, my family decided we're going to take some funds from the monies that we normally get and we're going to pay on one of my daughter's student loans. And we said, this is the amount we're going to carve out. And to this day, we're on plan. And next month, we'll come up with a different plan. 
but you have to kind of identify, I'm going to bring in $2,000, I'm going to spend $1,500 because I need that $500 to do something in October. You identify that $500 first and then you work backwards. All the expenses have to then come in at $1,500 if you're going to be able to meet that objective. And limit expenses to revenue less income, right? So if your income is $2,000 and you're looking to have net income, money left over $500, your expenses cannot exceed $1,500. Make sense? Excellent. And share and get buy-in from all planned participants. If I say nothing else on this page that you remember, this is the one. You can't have plan in your house but your wife has a different agenda. You have to be on the same page. So you put a plan together that the whole family is in agreement with who will be using those funds and make sure that we're all gonna stick to the plan. Now, I'm an accountant. I budget literally every single day or monitor budgets every single day. That's the nature of my business. You may not do that, but you still wanna be able to monitor it periodically to say, am I unplanned? week down the road, two weeks down the road. Don't wait until you get the end of the month and maybe too late if you're trying to identify a certain goal. All right, so that's planning. The next one is execute. So we want to generate revenue steadily. Don't depend on a windfall like a settlement or Atlantic City. It just does not work in terms of steady revenue stream. Generate revenue efficiently. So I'm a big believer in trying to collect your money as quickly as possible and spend it as slowly as possible. So if I can get people to pay me through ACH, through the fastest means possible, that's what we want to do, right? Um, take advantage of discounts and promotions. Now, there was a time when my family used to think I was the most embarrassing person on the earth. Because I'd go into a store and ask for coupons. Right? I may not have the coupon going in there, but if I'm there, I'm asking. Right? And my family would walk away. I don't know him. <laughs> now, they recognize that over the years, I'm now 59, I've done this literally with every single purchase. And I assure you, I've made a lot of savings over the years. I don't clip up coupons, I truly don't have the time. But I walk into Walmart, hey, let's see my coupon back there, I can take a manjo. They'll say, what's the worst that can happen? They say, no. But sometimes they'll take one out, you know what? I just happen to have a 10% coupon, and they apply uh, a coupon against that, that purchase. Um, take advantage of all points on credit cards. Now, there was a point when in our family, we literally spent more money than we took in, and we needed to use our credit card. Thank God those days are done. We use our credit card for very strategic reasons now. I simply go out and I buy $200 worth of grocery at Stop and Shop, I put it on my American Express, I go home and I pay it. And I'm building up points. And literally at the end of each year, we go down to Florida to visit my in-laws, and a big part of that um, airfare and so on gets paid through those points. It's really that simple. I don't know a big believer in use of credit cards, but if you tell me that I can get $600 worth of points at the end of the year by virtue of buying the stuff I normally buy, which is putting in a card, and I go home and pay the card right away, then it makes sense to me. 
you need, you literally have to have the cash though. Don't go out putting stuff on your car that you don't have the money in the bank already. So the money is there, I'm just putting it in the car and take the money and pay off the car. It works for me, I'm just giving you my tips. The biggest spending has gone as possible use due dates, right? Some companies, some uh, people will allow you to pay on turn, right? I am a CFO for a company, I see it all the time. We buy something that gives us 30 days to pay it off. We usually use that time period up to the 30 days. Same thing applies in, 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 in my house, we accept some credit cards. I try to pay it as late as possible without exceeding the deadline. If you exceed the deadline, it's going to impact your credit. All right? All right, moving on to the A in pair, account. Record every transaction, revenue, and expenses. Folks, the reason why I asked you earlier whether you have a written budget is the key word is written. you got to put it down. If you try to depend, uh, I'm not, uh, my memory's not the best. So I need to put things on paper. I guarantee you, if you put it on paper, you'd be surprised to see all the things you're spending on that you mentally didn't remember. I, I can't tell you one of the times that we are going through our budget and we have a certain line, grocery. Uh, here, 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 here. And I'll tell my wife, hey, listen, honey, we have one week left and you literally are almost close to budget. He's like, how's that even possible? I didn't bought one item. And then I am able to kind of just Go to my computer and sure, and you see that she bought 19 different things. Oh, you know what? I forgot about that. I did do that. But if you have it in writing, it's easier to remember it than if you try to commit to memory. And I took your actual the budget, right? You put a plan together, you got to make sure you're monitoring and comparing your actual to your budget. The plan doesn't really make any sense if you're not being able to manage it compared to the plan. So if you budget $200 for grocery, and it's three weeks into the uh, month and you're already at $200 spent, and you know likely you will have to spend another 50 bucks or so, you're gonna have to take it from somewhere else. So that means, you know, we have a tradition in our household that Friday is Chinese food day, right? And so sometimes we have to say, you know what? We're not ordering out today. We're gonna eat in because we are close to our food budget. So you have to make those dynamic adjustments to make it still work at the end. All right, um, and make adjustments in revenue and our expenses to stay on the plan, which I just talked about. And the last one in here is report, right? You did your accounting, my wife likes to see, okay, let me see it. You know, I can print out a report and show her, this is where we are three months into the month. So you wanna produce a report, you want to review and understand the results, and all parties have to be involved. Again, this is not a me-only uh, effort. If there are four people in your house that are spending and generating income, you want to have make sure you have all, everybody buying in. Really important. Do not try to eliminate or ignore anyone in the house who is involved in your budget planning because you want that buy-in. If they're engaged, they're going to be just as responsible as you will be. So all parties have to be involved. And make smart investments with net income, right? Mitch and uh, Sean will talk about those things. You want to make sure that you have designed your plan so that the excess funds you have are invested smartly. 
he is an absolute genius when it comes to investment, right? I'm telling you, the idea that you would take that money and do some kind of day trading or something like that when that's not your expertise is not a smart investment of your money. So be smart about that. And adjust next month's plan based on results, right? So if at the end of October, I'm finding that my regular income is uh, $2,000 and I budgeted $2,500 in November, I'm going to adjust my revenue down to $2,000 if that's what I'm anticipating. I did a budget back in January. It may not apply in November. So you have to be prepared to make the adjustments along the way. All right? So, um, so again, practice peer. That's what I do. Let me just share with you a pie that I, 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 I is near and dear to my heart. So, um, this is kind of what we use on a regular basis, depending on how we want to allocate our funds. So let's say you're bringing in $100 uh, for the month of October. You, here's a pie that shows you how we would allocate our funds. Now, tithing is important to me. It should be important to you. Here are the reasons why. One, if you truly believe in the faith, you tithe, right? Number two, this place cannot function without funds. So it's important that we support the organizations that we are part of. End of story. Um, so he set aside $10 of the $100, right? We go to Manhattan uh, for work, 12% of our income. It gets spent on transportation, that would be $12 of the 100 bucks. We set aside 10% of savings all the time. That's the $10 in this case. Housing, you really don't want it to exceed 33%. Uh, and that's just a golden rule when it comes to um, financing and so on. So $33 of $100 gets set aside for housing, mortgage, utilities, and so on and so forth. And then we have a bunch of student loans that we're supporting for our girls and so on with a mortgage. 20% uh, uh, set aside for debt. And then other expenses, we have things like health care, entertainment, vacation. Here's the one that's most important for me. I call it miscellaneous. That's the one, in the unlikely event, you have a situation where, you know, several months ago, there was this big hurricane. And for the first time, we've been in the house since 1994, water literally came through the window, not between the walls, it just literally through the window. <coughs> and I mean, I'm sitting in my basement looking at this water coming into my, I'm like, where, how's this happening? It literally had nowhere to go in that short spurt and it just came through the window. Reached out to the insurance company, put in a claim, denied. Why? Because of an act of God, and it's not covered. Well, it turned out, now there's mud in my basement, finished basement, on the carpet, and I forgot what the number was, but we literally had to get someone in and kind of clean it out the same day. That's where your miscellaneous comes in, right? You need to have that contingency fund that will allow you to deal with these emergencies. So that's the way we kind of allocate it, and uh, it, it works for me. You have to adjust in a way that works for you. I can literally manage to a penny, because we're literally that disciplined and that focused, and, and budgeting is that important to me. You may get to your household and you realize that folks aren't buying in, I guarantee you that is not surprising. I went through the same thing with my family, it took a long time for folks to kind of like get it. But I'm an accountant, so it's understanding for me. It's simple for me. It took a long time for my two girls and my wife to say, you know what? 
especially if things actually make sense. You tell me what you want to spend on November, that is not in the budget, we'll set it aside, and then we'll figure out how we're going to adjust our expenses in November to get to the funds that you need. Once we come up with a budget, everybody's happy with it, we're going to stick to it. And frankly, as time goes on, and you're realizing that you know, there's a certain line that's going over, I just send an email, a text, hey, looks like we're going to go over this here, I just want to make sure you guys are aware of it. Number five, and, and folks understand, you know, you need to make an adjustment. So, budget works, I highly recommend it, and with that said, I'm going to turn it back over to the facilitator. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen. You, 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 I've been married for 31 years. You got to know your household, know your household, right? It, 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 it works perfectly for us because my wife, love her to death, has very expensive taste. And so we want to make sure she's happy. And I'm perfectly fine with just going down and not having um, dinner if it means my wife is going to go out and entertain someone. I'm always the one who's making the sacrifice because I want her to be happy. But we need to communicate. Good job, Don. Good job with that. There's a big camera sitting right behind you right there, buddy. Listen, I need to get that tape at the end. <laughs> Thank you, brother, Doc. Uh, failing to plan is not a good thing. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And as I was going to say, I'm sure my wife appreciated much of what you had to say about going into the store and asking. She's always uh, trying to save us a few bucks. Praise the Lord. So next we have attorney Esquire, Mr. Phil Azachi. Phil is a partner at the law firm of DeCandido and Azachi. He practices in the areas of probate, estate planning, elder law, and medical planning. He graduated from CUNY School of Law and started his law practice upon admission to the bar over six years ago. He counsels, counsels his clients about wills, trusts, and probate and has appeared in serving courts across the state of New York. He has helped preserve hundreds of thousands of dollars for his clients. He was recently selected as a rising star by Super Lawyers. Let's give a warm welcome to Mr. Phil Zachi. basically deal with is how to plan uh, uh, a few things, including how to leave something for your children, how to prepare for when you get older, or if you're a young family, to prepare for in the event something happens to you, who are going to take care of your kids. Um, another thing that we plan for is if you want to give to charity or you want to give to friends and family uh, that aren't your children. Uh, 
This is a very, very important area for a lot of people. Um, and as you get older, you will accumulate wealth. If you follow a budget and you have investments, you're going to have something to leave. Um, but you also incur new expenses. Right? So when you're younger, you have a young family, there's medical costs for your children, there's educational costs, there's a mortgage. By the time you hit 60 or 70, the story is different, right? Kids are out of the house, you're living off of a pension, or you're still working, God willing, and your new cost is your own health care. So for a lot of people, they don't really think about this kind of thing, because it's scary. What happens when I'm disabled? What happens if... I got, uh, and who's going to take care of my funeral? So, the key for understanding this stuff is to understand some just basic terms, basic ideas. What is a will? What is a trust? What's a healthcare proxy? What is a living will? Those are all important things that they not only involve finances, they involve communication with your family, and they also involve moral issues, religious issues, that you may be coming to your church for to figure out. So let me just walk through a couple of the concepts. What is really a will? It's a legal document that's subject to a formal execution. It has to follow the laws of New York about how to sign it. And what you're doing is you're setting forth how you wish to distribute your money and to whom. In the United States and here in New York, uh, we have the wonderful benefit of free choice. That means you can give it to whoever you want, but definitely, definitely, don't think you can run away from your spouse, because uh, the law does protect your spouse from disinheritance. But you can pick whoever you want and how you want to do it. Um, the process of doing a will and what you're looking for when you're talking to an attorney is, who do I really want to be the executor of the estate? Who do I want to manage the money when I pass away? You want to also ask, uh, how do I want to get that money, and in what form? So am I giving a person cash? Am I giving them a house? Am I giving them the rest of the money after every, everything else is paid for, my funeral expenses? There are different types of language that you're using in the will to identify that. And your lawyer's going to work through it with you. They're also going to work through with you some of the more difficult things. Like some people have children from other marriages or children that have disappeared from their lives. Do you disinherit them? I generally don't like disinheritance. I think it creates conflict. And you have to find and understand people's incentive schemes. So uh, last wills and testament also can deal with who do I uh, want to take care of my children? I recently had a cousin who, he had a friend from his synagogue who, um, he was like 55 and he had a four-year-old. And unfortunately he passed away. And he left his son to be taken care of by my cousin. Which was a really amazing thing because now he's got another son. And that boy is four and my second cousin is, is four. So now there's three of them. It's great. It's a blessing. Um, but he could have only done that, effectively give it to a person that wasn't family, because of a will. Another kind of thing to think about is what are probate assets and non-probate assets? What are assets that will generally go to a courthouse and what are assets that don't go to a courthouse? Meaning, 
they pass by operation of law. Let me give you an example. Many of you are married. You own that home with your partner, your spouse. The law in New York is that if you own and buy that piece of property, real property, with your partner while you're married, generally speaking, it passes by operation of law, meaning automatically when you die, they get that property. There's no need for court, uh, court uh, appearances and filing fees and costs. Another um, type of property is, which is very common, are insurance policies, 401ks. Those are examples of the types of property where you have beneficiaries. So you can set your beneficiary and you don't need to go to court. Now some of you may say, why do I need to go to court with a will? Probate really means, it comes from the word, if you were to think about it, another word like probative, you're looking to prove that something was validly executed in the right state of mind. It's really what it is. And so the court's going to look at it. Now, I go to court a lot, and I'll admit, sometimes it takes a long time to get that done. And so during that period of time, you're accumulating a lot of costs without having the requisite money or the benefit for yourself. In other words, you have to pay for funeral costs, you have to pay the mortgage, you have to pay if there's a miscellaneous flood in your basement. So when you have your deeded property in a certain way, it allows you to kind of get the ground running without having to worry about do I own it or do I not own it. And the same thing with insurance policies, why do we buy life insurance? Many of us buy life insurance to pay for our funeral costs. My mother, for example, she had gotten life insurance and she wanted to send my father's body to Israel. She would not have been able to do that without life insurance. It's expensive to bury people. I'm sure you guys have seen it. It's like $10,000. The love of God, they're, they're passed away. Why is it so expensive? It's just the nature of it. So you have to be prepared for those kinds of things, and sometimes having those kinds of assets are beneficial. Annuities are another example of, of something that would be a non-probate asset. So those are some of the things you should think about when it comes to wills, probate and non-probate assets. What do I want in a will, and what do I want to pass directly to a beneficiary? A common thing that most people ask about is trusts. I want a trust, I need a trust. There are two kinds of trust that most of us will experience. Uh, the other kinds of trusts are for people that have a combined wealth of over 22 million, which very few families have that. There's only 56,000 families in America that do. So for many of us, we do irrevocable trusts. Irrevocable trusts involve taking your assets and putting it into essentially a corporation in which you don't manage it. You get the benefit of it, but you don't have control over it. And what are they usually used for? They are generally used for, how do I get on Medicaid? How do I offset serious costs? And then apply to Medicaid. For many people, they don't realize it until very late in life. It's a huge expense, uh, healthcare costs. Just to be in a nursing home is almost thirteen dollars or $14,000 a month, which is exorbitant. That means, in less than a year, if you had $100,000 saved, it's gone. It's going to a nursing home. And for many of us, 
we're also living in a new population condition. How many people are really having kids at 22, like our parents' generation? Not many anymore. Most of us have it at 30. Because we want to be a lawyer or a doctor. We want to get our life in order. We want to live. That's what everybody always says, right? It's the typical millennial answer. Uh, we want to live. Yeah. Try living like my mother, uh, hand to mouth. Uh, so the world is different. Uh, so what ends up happening is you're having kids that are 10, 11, when you're 40. And now your mom and dad are 80. So now you don't have just one kid or two kids. Now you have two parents. So you need help. And so you have to plan accordingly. Some people do these Medicaid revocable trusts. But I know that there are some older members in, in our audience today. They got by in life by having control over their own lives. So the idea that they're going to turn over an asset and pay a lawyer like me six, seven, five, ten thousand dollars to do a Medicaid plan, maybe not something they want to do. There are alternatives, which I think Mitch will be talking about maybe, which is you can get long-term health, in, health um, uh, care plans, insurance plans, which can offset, or an alternative, take you to the next level, which is make you qualify for Medicaid. And then I, uh, the last couple of things I'll do is healthcare declarations and powers of attorney. Powers of attorney basically it's you're giving an agent, someone that you trust to manage your financial uh, legal uh, affairs. Most people think, oh, but just I'm signing a document. Yes, signing the document is easy. Being a power of attorney is difficult as hell. And the reason that it's very difficult is many of us don't budget are for ourselves. Now you have to figure out what you're going to do for someone else. That means you have to know every dollar that you spend for that person and for what. You need a receipt. You need to understand it. It's an important document. Don't misunderstand. But for many people, they don't understand the extent of it. Or if they do know the extent of it, they take advantage of it. And if you do something improper, there are massive repercussions. Um, so you can manage anything. You can help them get a mortgage. You can help them do a lot of other things. Healthcare declarations and living wills. Healthcare proxies are, I'm elderly, and I want someone else to make the decisions if I become incapacitated. It does not specify what you want them to do for you, which is where faith comes in. So for example, for many of us, the idea that you're not going to resuscitate or you're not going to give nutrition, for them, runs afoul of their religious beliefs. And so one thing that they have is something called a living will, where you're specifying, you know what, if I get to that state, I don't want anything else. In fact, I also want to pass away in my own house. You know, you can specify those things. So when you go and see an attorney, you're going to inquire about those things. Understand that. Now I'm going to leave you with one thought, because I'm sure I've said a lot here. Um, and I leave it up to some questions later on, we can touch on more details. What will I say is the most, the two most important things when dealing about your estate plan? Well, I'd say three things. Uh, one of them is communication. We live in a world where the younger generation wants to give up information easily, and we live in a world where the older generation doesn't want to say a word. Okay, find a balance. The younger generation doesn't know what money is. 
in the same way. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I say that I'm 34 years old. We think about money differently than our parents' generation who come from foreign countries or they come from America's heartland or they experience real traumas in their lives. You know, uh, like the World War II generation. They're now past, but these people were eating turnips. So every penny mattered. But privacy is a huge thing. The problem is when you die, there's no more privacy. And everything is open. And it's scary to think, I have to bury someone. I have to pay a mortgage when I've never had a house before. So you have to be really conscientious with your family to talk with them. Listen, I'm leaving to John more than I'm leaving to Tina. Okay? And the reason is, uh, John has a harder time in his life. But I want Tina to manage the money because she's always been a great daughter. She knows how to manage these things. Um, another thing is communications with your advisors. Estate planning is not, and I say this, is not simply about I go to the lawyer and the lawyer tells me everything. You need to talk to your accountant about tax implications because there are real ones. What happens when my mother bought a house for $70,000 in 1970 and now my property's worth, my mother's property's worth $900,000? What's the capital gains? Now, they're, they're, don't worry, not that I panic, the government does protect you in that, but understanding that is a huge part of it. You need to go to a guy like Don. Say, hey, Don, can you help me out? I want to understand capital gains. And yeah, you know, that's, that's what he's going to do. You want to speak to your financial advisor. Insurance policies are not simple as Whistle and Dixie. They're very, very difficult to understand. You know, how we get taxed, What's its relationship to gift taxes versus estate taxes, etc.? It really depends. Um, you may also want to, if you're going to deed your property in a certain way, you want to speak to someone that works in the mortgage business. For some people, they get reverse mortgages. You can't change a deed when you get a reverse mortgage. But if, let's say, you have a more traditional mortgage and you want to put it in a revocable trust, you can do that. But you need to understand that with your advisors. And the last thing is, I know death is scary, but it's part of life. So you got to have those meaningful talks. You really do. And uh, I know they all seem to be the same thing, but that about communication, but you really need to communicate in order for you to make better decisions. So uh, I, I leave you with that note, uh, communication is key, and uh, go from there. Very sobering information. Very sober. <laughs> Honey, we gotta talk when we get home. <laughs> it's a lot funnier when you come to the office, but you know, when you do these presentations, it's like really scary. So sorry. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta pray. <laughs> All right, praise the Lord. All right, our final speaker. Batting cleanup. Batting cleanup. We have Mitchell Walker. Bring us home, Mitchell. Bring us home. All right. Mitchell specializes in retirement and investment planning. He has been a financial advisor for with Royal Alliance Associates for over 30 years. He has worked in the financial services industry in various capacities. Mitchell's experience and knowledge has helped him build successful portfolios for his clients. We might have to talk when this is all said and done. 
Mitchell has worked with several churches and educational organizations to develop, to develop financial plans based on their specific needs. Let's welcome Mitchell Walker. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, first of all, I would like to thank uh, you guys for having us here. Um, this panel has done a great job. Um, it, I'm sitting up here and been in this business since 1988 and I learned some things. So it's give yourself a round of applause for being here um, because there's certainly other options on um, Saturday morning, um, like maybe getting a little extra sleep, going to a son's game or whatever. But uh, really, um, when we look at uh, financial planning, putting financial plans together, um, you know, it really comes down to specific needs and individual preferences. Um, and just a little bit uh, about my background, I started in this business, as I said, in 88, um, which seems like yesterday, but uh, it's a pretty good while ago. Um, and I started putting plans together for uh, family members, close uh, friends in my neighborhood. That was my start. So that being the case, uh, the things that I uh, had to do were really had to be situations that I knew where my people would be taken care of, otherwise I wouldn't get invited to uh, Thanksgiving dinner maybe or Christmas, right? So it really um, talked to the fact of looking at family and community in a way where financial literacy was something that just wasn't on the table. So I was bringing a lot of information to my family and helping uh, them and also my community to realize that you can be a saver and invest your money in a bank, or you can be an investor. If you're a saver, the bank is taking your money, giving you one or 2% back, and then taking it into the investment markets and investing it between 12 and 18, if not more. So really, it's a rental fee for your money. So uh, uh, it's a transition from being a saver to be an investor, and everyone makes that transition at different points in time, but at, but at some point you have to realize that putting your money in a bank is really not gonna ultimately be where the growth is. There's a component of your of your finances that should be in that, in that instrument, but ultimately a good portion needs to be in the investment markets. So just gonna hit on a few quick, uh, quick points here. Um, one of the key components is setting a goal for yourself. And those goals and objectives should have uh, time, time horizons, right? Uh, those horizons um, allow you to make the choice in terms of what type of investments you look at. Your, your goals should all, always be what we call SMART, which, which breaks out to being specific, right, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. So, you know, a lot of goals we, uh, we look at, well, we may want to retire, we may want to send a child uh, uh, to school, right? But each one of those has a specific time horizon and various risk factors that should be associated with, uh, with making those decisions. Various investments have different time horizons. Um, the next component uh, centers around budgeting, and Don did a good job around uh, looking at what your budgeting is. Um, I'll also say, and spend a little time on this one, is your emergency fund, right? 
any investment plan needs to first incorporate an emergency fund because you never know when water is going to come through your basement window and you know put you in a position where you may have to come up with some come up with some monies and what you don't want to have to do is look at investments that you've made have to liquidate those positions because of an emergency um, and Usually when those type of things happen, it's at the most unopportune time. And if you've got a plan for uh, uh, retirement and you have to go into those types of accounts, whether it's a 401k, whether it's an IRA, usually there are various penalties associated with taking money out at the wrong time. And there's also market risk. The market may be uh, at a point where it's down, right, and you're and you're liquidating positions at a point where you really shouldn't be. So, so having an emergency fund is something that, uh, as an advisor, we, we sit down and work those components out first. And a lot of times when I sit down with people, they say, "Well, I can save, um, you know, based on my budget, I can save three hundred dollars a month." Well, I say, "Okay, that's that's a good that's a good number." So we'll look at, well, how long have you been in this current job? Well, I've been there five years. Okay, so you should have, you should have in your savings account eh, somewhere around fifteen dollars to $20,000 saved. Then we get to the point of looking at the actual savings and budget, and there's maybe $1,000. So, okay, we don't really have an emergency fund readily available to start making different types of investments. So the first piece of that, in my mind, is to start to establish whether you can save money before you can invest money, okay? It's kind of, you know, it kind of looks uh, 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 sexy to, uh, okay, I'm gonna invest in this stock, I'm gonna invest in this mutual fund, but yet you haven't shown the ability to be able to put money away and save over the period of time when you have excess, excess funds. So that's where the budgeting situation and what Don went into detail about how, how we budget and then that shows whether we have the ability to, uh, to invest. Uh, insurance is another bedrock of a financial plan and there are various types of insurance. Uh, we know basic classes of, of whole life and term. Each particular uh, a type of plan is specific to exactly what your uh, what your situation might be. So when we when we look at term, we're talking about something that almost looks like your auto your auto insurance. You pay you pay your premium. If there's a situation, then the insurance company pays out. In your whole life plans, they have a savings attached to them, and there are various forms of whole life that. Um, uh, not going to go into the specific details, but there are uh, different uh, ways that you can actually invest pieces of your premium and have what's called a cash value that uh, accumulates over um, over time. Um, also, we uh, as we look at a financial plan, we look at credit, and from a standpoint of how much debt you carry, debt is an anchor to your to your financial plan because typically, uh, uh, whether it's credit card uh, or any other types of uh, debt, it usually carries a high interest rate. So if you've got a large portion of your dollars that are in these credit cards, that interest rate that you're paying out 
uh, could be anywhere from 17 to 25 to 30. I mean, you know, some of these cards have escalator uh, uh, clauses that really uh, increase what you're, what, you're, what you're paying out. So one of the first components is if your debt is out of sync, then we look at taking your income to reduce that debt, uh, which which allows you to be more nimble uh, in terms of your um, in terms of your investing. So, um, looking at looking at investing and um, the various components of that, there are various classes uh, of investments. Uh, we talk about stocks, bonds. Uh, a part of stocks we'll also say is mutual funds. And also, um, we look at cash. Uh, cash is a, uh, a key component to your investment plan. Um, one of the uh, panelists talked about earlier how we're moving uh, towards a, a, a recession, uh, which uh, the last recession we had was in 2008, where the real estate market had a, 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 big, a big correction, right? So, uh, my clients that I, that I had during that period of time, uh, my phone rang constantly. This is the end of the world. CNBC is saying market classes are gonna go totally off the chart. People are watching television. So I said, listen, turn the television off, put on something a little, uh, not as uh, steep in terms of what, what they're saying about the markets, don't get caught up in the hype. And, and hear this, those cash positions that, that we've had, let's invest those monies at this point. People looked at me and said, Mitch, are you crazy? Are you crazy? We're gonna invest when asset classes have dropped by 50 to 60% across the board. There's been a reset uh, uh, globally. Lehman went out of business, right? Wall Street, uh, 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 they've got, uh, uh, the president, everyone sitting down, uh, trying to work work out a plan, but we were buying shares at tremendous discounts, right? We were we were buying. I'll give you an analogy. We were buying out air conditioners when it was snow on the ground, right? Everything in those classes were on sale, and timing is very important when you make an investment. You want to always buy low and sell high. So at that point, if you were in assets during the 2008, 2007 meltdown, if you decided to sell your positions at that point, you were selling at the worst possible time. But it took courage, right, to hold those positions, right? Many folks uh, 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 that I had during those times we had developed relationships over many, many years, and I was able to hold their hands through that, uh, through that process as an advisor. That's really my job. We all walk on water when the markets are up. You know, your clients love you, right? But the key points for people like me in my uh, position is to hold people's hands through those difficult times because your instincts are to sell at the wrong time. To sell as the crowd is running out the door, you want to be coming in. Right, but that's not the in instincts because of how media generates uh, 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 the public to move at the wrong time. But the smart money is doing what? They're buying those same positions at huge discounts. 
and what was talked about earlier, wealth, tremendous amounts of wealth were, uh, were created during the Obama years, those, uh, those eight years, and, and then there was a carryover effect into the current administration. So um, a lot of it really centers on having a plan. So if you don't have a plan and you see these corrections, then you're prone to move at the wrong time. But if your plan was not to make, you know, I didn't need this money until five, six, seven years later, it had no impact on you other than if you had cash on hand to what we call average down your cost. And not to get too technical, uh, uh, as you buy lower, it averages the cost of those securities that you may have bought at a higher point. So, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's various strategies that we, that we employ, but the key is that you have a plan in place and you stick to the plan. Um, there's, a few, there's a few other items around um, uh, college savings for, um, for, um, for children. Uh, the 529 plans were generated, uh, which allow you to invest up to married couples 30,000, uh, 30, uh, single 15, and those assets grow uh, uh, tax-free as long, as long as they're used, right, for, um, for education. And people say, well, college is a long time, but you can also use those, those assets for high school. You can use those uh, assets for vocational uh, programs. Uh, not every child is going to wind up in, um, you know, wind up going to a traditional college, but many of them will wind up, at, you know, being electricians, plumbers, and they and those same educational environments uh, uh, will be able to benefit from your 529 plans. So um, I talk to a lot of people about those. Uh, we don't take advantage of them. We do not take advantage of them. And uh, a lot of our children wind up incurring huge amounts of debt. Uh, it, it, you know, it's a discussion in Washington. Uh, a lot of the candidates are talking about free college, forgiving uh, all debt. They're not going to forget all that debt, okay? Uh, 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 those are huge government entities, and um, they're not going to uh, reset uh, 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 what's, uh, what's owed. And it puts um, a lot of our children behind the eight ball in terms of carrying large amounts of debt and then um, trying to find employment that can support that debt and their, and their, and their lifestyles. So um, it's important that we start, um, that we start early. Um, one of the most important components is time. Time can be your friend or your, or your enemy. If you, if, you, if you don't have a lot of time, then that means you have to be more aggressive in your approach to your investing. The more time that we have, um, we, can, we can be more methodical. You want to be a, a marathon a runner, not a sprinter, right? You wanna, uh, it gives you the opportunity to go through various market cycles. The markets typically cycle around every seven years or so. We've had one of the long, one one of the longest expansions since um, uh, 2008 to where to where we are now. But there's a lot of uh, uh, tea leaves out there that that, that is pointing towards um, pointing towards recession. Oil prices are are, are coming down. Global growth is is flat. 
Um, you know, there are different uh, entities like the IMF that are looking at lower, lower growth. Um, so uh, uh, it's always, in, um, as I say, it's always a good time to get your uh, investment plan started um, and just understand that it's not an investment that's going to grow and, you know, like, like the lottery. It takes time and um, patience and understanding. So uh, one of the uh, last takeaways that I'll have here so we can really get into the Q&A uh, 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 is no matter how much you have, right, the key is getting started. A lot of the um, mutual funds, you can, you can open an account for as little as $500. You can put in as little on a monthly basis as $50. So really, no matter what the components are, you uh, are really uh, should look at uh, your budget, uh, look at your timeline, and look at your family's overall structure. But um, I'll just leave you with this. Get started. Thank you. Amen, amen. All very, very, very good information. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna open the floor for questions. Uh, if any of the panelists can expand on what they've already shared or if you have any questions, feel free to jump right in. I'm gonna ask the first question and then you guys can take turns coming up to the mics to ask, ask your questions. If you have the index cards that we handed out, if you're a little shy, you can uh, pass up the index card and I'll ask the question for you. So uh, most people, do not have a pension so, plan. Let me just make one other point. In addition to that, we have what we call frequently asked questions as well. So if you don't have a question, we're going to um, feel some of these questions as well from previous seminars. We want to give you as much information as possible because information is power. And when you walk into these offices after this, there's a cost associated with that. So let's give you the information now. Thank you, Brother Don. All right, so first question. Most people do not have a pension plan. What are the best investments in addition to a 401k or IRA? Well, pension plans, I guess the question is around employer pension plans. So uh, if you're self-employed and you have your own business, a SEP IRA uh, is, is a, a real good option. And that's a simplified uh, employee pension plan which you can, you can structure as, a, um, as an entrepreneur yourself. And that gives you the ability to deduct your contributions to those plans. Um, also, we have what's called the Roth, uh, Roth IRA, right? Which, which, uh, which is an investment that you can, um, is, it doesn't have the tax deductibility, right? But the income side, when you take um, distributions after 59 and a half, is tax exempt. So the monies that you put in, you don't have the ability to deduct or write off. However, the growth on your money, it allows you to take those dollars down the road uh, 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 tax exempt. And the way, you know, the way things are going now, tax rates are probably going up, right? So 
Um, even though your income would be lower when you're retired, but that doesn't mean your tax bracket will be lower, right? So if your tax brackets remain in the same, the same or maybe a little lower, that income is going to be exempt. So, uh, you know, the Roth IRA is a very powerful means to, uh, to um, invest for, uh, for retirement. Aspire, I wanted to know why would revocable trusts be more appropriate for those with $20 million or above versus those who have less than $22 million? Oh, I, I think, thank you for the question. Uh, I think maybe there was a bit of confusion. I, I was suggesting there's, there's so many trusts in our tax code that talking about them with you, um, they, they're, they're applicable to people with a, a certain, that they fall beyond the deductions, the typical deductions that we have for our benefit. So if I talk to you about a grant or retained annuity trust, which is a very complicated trust, it's not something that the average person is really encountering. Uh, revocable trusts, I, I didn't want to talk about it too much when, when I was speaking or presenting, but revocable trusts, they can't be used for Medicaid because you're essentially maintaining control over an asset. And that is a key part of why, uh, a key part of Medicaid planning is that you're forfeiting your ability to control your assets and giving it to a trustee. What people use revocable trusts for, and this is just a general kind of idea, is one of two scenarios. Scenario one is you have no kids, you have no siblings, your closest relative is like your first cousin. In order to prove that that person is related to you, there, it takes a long time in a court of law, especially if no one can vouch for your own family makeup. So you have to pay for a genealogist, which can cost $2,000, $3,000, $5,000, $10,000, depending on where your family's from. Like for example, there are Jewish families from Russia that there are Holocaust survivors. Revocable trusts, trusts made a lot of sense because they don't need to go to court and proving what that person's makeup is would have cost an astronomical amount uh, with the genealogist and the process of getting it through the court. The other reason that you do a revocable trust is you own assets in multiple states, real property. Anytime that you own, so there's a lot of people that they're originally from the South they own a house in the South, and then their family moved to the U.S. and they own property here. In fact, there's a lot of African Americans that now they're moving back down South based on census data, and they're buying, they own, they turn the property they have here into a investment property, and they live in South Carolina or North Carolina. The thing is, every state controls its own real estate. So therefore, if you pass away, the property that's here has to be probated here, and the property down there has to be probated. And the process of getting appointed in two states requires making its, its certified documents, and those things can cost thousands and thousands of dollars. So people set up revocable trusts to avoid that, and then you don't need to go through. You can put all the assets in there. If you have a, a decent insurance plan with your employer and it's portable and it covers most of your debt with a little bit extra, is that small? Or should you have a plan outside of your employer? If you have a portable plan and you've had it 
over 20 years, uh, your rate is going to be a whole lot cheaper in terms of the premium uh, from when you were, say, you were in your 20s versus now, say, you're retiring in your 50s. If you're getting a new policy at that point, uh, both uh, areas, your age and your current health are going to factor in how much how much your um, your um, your premiums are. If you have a a uh, if you work for a company that allows you to port that that policy at the at the rate that that group insurance was, which is probably not likely, because when they did that um, when you got that policy, that was a group policy within that corporation. So if they give you a rate that's anywhere near that group rate and you can port it, I would say grab it quickly, pay the premium, and make sure the paperwork is in your hand and all the information has been converted from, the, um, from, that, um, from that company to now where you're the owner. Because during the point in time when you work for that corporation, the, they are the owner of that, of that contract. When you leave, you need to make sure that that can be ported with you uh, and you become the, uh, you become the owner. So um, there could be possibly when you leave, it may be a lower uh, amount of coverage. So you may be somewhat maybe under underinsured by porting it. So uh, in those instances, I would recommend looking into a term policy. For someone that's maybe, let's say, in their 50s, uh, if you could get uh, um, another 20 years of term uh, uh, at, a, at a decent rate, depending on your health, um, you know, that would be something uh, that I would recommend. Because typically, we as a people are underinsured, right? Um, because no one wants to talk about insurance because it, because it focuses on the end, right? But really, it's the beginning for your children or whoever that uh, uh, your beneficiary is, uh, is something that you're really insuring um, the value in you, your education, your years of experience. That ultimately can't be passed on, but it can be passed on in terms of a monetary number uh, uh, in terms of how much uh, insurance is on what you've accumulated over your over your lifetime, so that's why that's why it's very it's very important. And there's a lot of ways to plan around insurance. Uh, um, there are various uh, 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 like just a quick example. Um, um, my family reunion, we as a group, uh, us, well, when we were younger, <laughs> we decided to insure uh, our um, our parents as a pool. Right, and we paid in a specific amount every month. The younger cousins, first cousins, and unfortunately, a lot of my uncles and aunts have passed on. So those assets came into our pool, and we did things. Some opened businesses, some, you know. But those are just concepts that insurance can be used for. A question for the gentleman who first spoke. Um, my husband's a doctor. We fit the scenario that you described, and we also invest in real estate every year. Given that timing is so important and things are pointing towards a recession, would you recommend that a family such as mine um, maybe wait, 
you know, maybe not invest every year because we're going towards a recession and instead maybe put invest in other things while we kind of wait on the recession to come. Um, I'm just trying to get a better sense of should we still be aggressive now or should we back off and maybe invest in some of the other things that some of the gentlemen talked about since we are um, headed, it seems like things are pointing in that direction that there will be a recession and prices may be dropping maybe in a couple years from now. You know, that, that's an outstanding question. So, and it's, it's not a cookie cutter answer. Um, so let, let's just take the scenario the way you presented it. Um, so, so I'm gonna go back to Don. Actually, I'm gonna include all, all four of what we're saying in the answer, right? So A, there's a budget in place and you've already set aside some assets, right? So, so you know you have liquidity. Liquidity is cash that's available to spend. You have, I'm gonna use for simple, you have $100. Okay, now, you have to determine what are we looking to achieve and in what time frame are we looking to achieve that. Is it something that we're looking to hold on to long term? Is it short term? All right. Um, and what level are we looking to, to achieve that? Right. So I'll give you an example. If, and because timing is, is important, if you find a property and you're able to get it at a low cost, under value, and your goal is not to, to make a fast return, to purchase and then sell it could potentially be the right thing to do. If you're looking for the long haul, then maybe you might want to allocate some of those assets to an investment, uh, uh, that one of the type of investments that uh, Mitch was referring to, but also real estate still hold, holds true. I have some, some of, uh, so, so my average client is about an eight figure, uh, individual, right? So they have, we have, they have, may have mixed portfolios. They have a real estate portfolio and they also have an investment portfolio. I have some that primarily only have real estate portfolios and the reason why is because they never sell real estate. Why? Because once they own the real estate, the rents always go up, right? So the mortgage is fixed and then once they, they've finished the mortgage, they hold the real estate and it becomes wealth that they continue to pass on in the family, and since they've been doing this for 50 to 100 years, the family's just so wealthy and own so much property, they own blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks. And so they're able to leverage those properties to get more money to keep doing it. So it depends on what you're looking to achieve, and it's, but it starts somewhere. I think the initial comes from a consultation and helps you determine what you're looking to achieve, and then you can, you can make the right decision. But to go to the crux of your, your question, which is, when do you do it? Um, remember I said musical chairs. So if you come across something that, that fits into your budget and to your plan now, do it now. However, don't force it through the hole. So just because you have the $5 doesn't mean you have to spend the $5. You wait until you find a property that fits, sort of like this building you're sitting in. You wait until you find one that fits, and then you purchase it. <laughs> They're going to purchase a lot of buildings, right? But it didn't fit. You know, the long-term vision, I want to put the school downstairs. I want to do this, right? And so, okay, I see this fits the vision. Now let's figure out, right? So, so you have to do the, the initial planning first. Once that's in place, determine your vision. What are you looking to achieve? And then something will come along. God is good, right? Something will come along that will fit the plan that you're looking to have. Did, did that answer your question? So it's not a direct do it this way, but um, without question, 
you just have to understand your time, what you're looking to achieve and the time in which you're looking to achieve it. I, I just wanted to jump in for a second. I think that there's this notion in our society that because there's a recession, that means everything is going to go bad. One great thing about this country is that we're all fairly, you know, we're all hardworking, we're all simple people. We have simple wants and simple needs. Our financial institutions and our markets are very, very complicated at this point. Certain areas will go down, but there are incredible businesses that are involved. Even in the real estate game, there's an, an insurance business that deals with real estate that you can invest in. The benefit of dealing with financial advisors is that they know more nuanced elements and they can kind of give you those alternatives. So even though there may be a recession coming, it's really uh, a question of figuring out uh, and understanding, well, there may be another opportunity if you understand or start with the assumption that it's more complicated than like the Great Depression, where it's just a run right. on a bank. Good point. We have a lot of young people that are really starting working now. They really have good jobs and they've entered into their professions. You know, they're a lot smarter than I was when I was their age. So now with all of this information, a part of this was to empower our people, you know? And so with all of this, where should they start right now? They're making good money, but a lot of them, you know, they, they, they really don't know what to do with that money. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, they need to have a, a definite plan. What would you say is the, is the first thing they need to begin doing uh, with this new income that they have? So, so let me take that and all of us can answer that question, actually. Um, we've done these seminars before, specifically at my church in particular, and to answer that question, one of the questions that came up in our previous seminar was, um, how much should I allocate to debt like credit cards and car loans? And I'm going to use my 23-year-old daughter. I'm proud of her. She's in pre-med right now, but she gets her babysitting income that she uses for her own uh, needs. And she likes to invest. So she'll invest her $1,000 and she's generating 5% interest on that investment. And I'm like, wonderful. Well, it so happens that her bills come to my house and I see a credit card in her name. Of course, she's like, don't open my mail. I opened it. <laughs> and she had a credit card bill for $900 paying 29% interest on. And so I had to send a sit with her and say, honey, here's how this works. You invested your $1,000, you're getting 5% interest, but you have $900 that you're paying 29% interest on. The math doesn't work. So we need to close that credit card, pay it off and close it, and then you can start investing, right? So educating our kids is terribly important. And she's like, but then, I already made an investment, I can't afford to pay it off right now. Because guess what, I lost my babysitting job. And we're like, you know what, I'll tell you what, if I pay this off, you're gonna close the account, you're not gonna reopen it. And that was the agreement we made. And then she realizes now that you can't be paying more in interest than you're getting in interest income. It makes no sense. So educating our kids are important. They'll get all this income, how you manage that income, is terribly important. 
right? That, that was one of the points that I made earlier. If you're carrying a, a lot of debt at these crazy rates, you're not going to get that consistently in the marketplace. You're going to have some years where you could be up 30%, other years you're only up 10%. Some years you're going to be down. There's going to be negative returns, but what you're looking at is an average return over 5, 10, 15 years, right? It's about the average. It's called the rule of 72, uh, how money grows. Every six years, right, your money will double at 12%. So we shoot for 12% or you hear me say 12%, 12%, that's because of the rule of 72. But it, it's important, and just from a practical standpoint, um, maybe I just got lucky, but um, in terms of debt that American Express that you could charge, and then you had to pay the whole thing back at the end, the end of the next month, right? You you couldn't float it. It's not a it's not a um, a card that uh, is reoccurring interest. So for young for young folks that you know they travel around the world, kids go Dubai and all these places that we never even imagined kids travel. But my thing to my clients is if you're gonna travel and your kids are, are doing this, make sure the only card they have is a card where you've got to pay it back the very next month. So whatever you whatever you spend, you're basically using Amex's money for 30 days. They're floating you for 30 days. At the end of those 30 days, you have to pay it off in full, right? And that kind of teaches uh, a discipline, but also gives a little rope to live a little bit too. Uh, where you don't necessarily have to be in a cash position. So uh, that's just one, um, one thought. One thing, I'm also going to piggyback on it. So, so millennials are a little bit different. Uh, just a little bit different. But I'm telling you the reason why. So let's go to the last recession, 07, 08, right? So, so my oldest son is 28, right? So in 07, 08, he was how old, right? He was a teenager. So just think of the concept. They saw people losing their jobs. They saw people jumping out of buildings. So when they got in the position, I'm not going to do it that way. So they don't want to own houses. They, they don't want a landline phone. They don't need cell phones. It's a complete, they'll Uber all day long and pay $1,000 in Uber a month when you can just board a car. <laughs> it would be crazy. My son sold his car so I could rent a car. We talk about you can rent a car every day if you go out. But the thought process is just completely different. You gotta know it's, it's, a, it's a, and that's because of what they've experienced. Now, the dollar hasn't changed, but their view of money is different. They don't understand time and how time, everything happens quickly, but they don't understand the time factor, which is really critical when you're talking about money, right? Because it's the cost of money, hence the reason why I can make 5% here and not realize that I'm paying out 29%. And so, the concept is the same concept, but the communication is a different communication, and that actually has to be a specific seminar, <laughs> just because they, yeah, yeah, they don't, this, I listen, I'm not putting no money, waiting no 50 years for my money to turn around. I don't know what I'm doing in 50 years. <laughs> I'm going to create an app, and somebody's going to give me $10 billion next week. I'm going to sell, what are you talking about? I'm going to sell my sneakers on, on the app for $500 now. It's a, it's a complete different way because doesn't mean they're completely wrong but there's a there's a medium <laughs> and so you try to you speak in Chinese they speak in Spanish and nobody understands anybody yeah, just just like I think yeah, I'm, I'm not him not him I'm, I'm, th I'm 34 years old and I and I graduated in 2007 from the University of Michigan I came out of that school thinking I was the hottest thing since sliced bread 
you know, I was, I still do. <laughs> I was, I, I could not, when I tell you I could not get a job, I'm the master of sending out resumes. I was the master of showing up at doors. When I, the reason I started my law practice in 2012 was that was the financial crisis for lawyers. And so I met my business partner going door to door in a suit, a tired suit. It was shiny, it was tired. And I was going up and down Queens Boulevard and handing out resumes. And, and the Lord was kind to me and introduced me to my business partner, who's an older version of me, a little bit funnier. Um, and, but the fact of the matter is things have been flipped on kids of my age. For a lot of them, the biggest challenge is the parents that go to school and then they found out, um, I gotta get $250,000 in debt, and then you can't get out of it. And the traditional fields that you thought were gonna make you a lot of money aren't the same. Being a doctor is not easy, you know. I, it's just not. We don't, we don't value professionals the same way. Your lawyer's a thief or a liar. Your doctor doesn't know anything because Google said it's better. Your, your, your accountant is the guy that uh, is the guy who couldn't get into law school or be a doctor, so he became an accountant. And the, you know that's what they you know people have these insulting things about professionals, and and a lot of it has to do with the fact the money, the reviews, the fact that you don't need to know something to give your opinion about anything. So and that has a lot to do with the traditional institutions have been flipped, schools have been flipped, traditional jobs. Now I love my accountant. And I love Don, so I'm just saying, it's just, that's how people are nowadays. So they are flipping their ideas about how you make money, and it's, it's you know, they gotta get, change that. So just um, share a little bit more about the panel here. Sean and I are, are partners, um, and we prepare personal and business financial statements, prepare tax returns, set up corporations, um, help folks with their mortgages, and so on. And this young man here and his partner, Bill, um, happen to be uh, the law firm that we use anytime we can, unless they say they can't do it. Um, and this young man here is my church's um, financial advisor, and he's done a phenomenal job and when it comes to investment uh, uh, financial planning. I, I know how we do it without him. Um, our, our investments are just doing exceptionally well, and I want to... Uh, thank him for that. So, another quick question that, that tends to come up is, why do I always have expenses that don't fit in my budget? And it happens all the time. I have friends who stop budgeting because they budget X and they spend twice X. And it's like, well, why does that happen? Well, the simple reality is, you need to live within your means, right? So, if you know you're budgeting X, and you're literally tracking your spending against X, you will quickly realize line by line that I'm going over X on entertainment, and therefore I need to make an adjustment on the entertainment line. Or if you've actually gone over by $2, you have to take that $2 from somewhere else to stay within budget. So the budget has to be dynamic. You can't just put it on paper. I love my wife to death, but when we put a budget together, she's like, put a budget together, next. <laughs> You know, and she just kind of keeps spending. So over time, she has gotten to the point where, where she realized, you know what? Hey, let me look at the budget and see what it's saying. And she looks at it now and she said, you know what? Yeah, I need to kind of make an adjustment here. And so we, we're constantly making the adjustment because we have a common objective. 
And that's what it boils down to. Right. Uh, uh, just a, another practical point. What, what I'll do is when I sit down, uh, I'll have a family. I say everyone keep every receipt for a, for a specific month. Just do this for one month. Uh, pin it on to the refrigerator. Just boom, pin, pin. All those ATM and all, uh, pin, pin, pin. And then at the end of the month, just look at the, just just add it all up. It's simple and it's practical. And sometimes it's fun to see who has the whole, because there's always holes in a budget. There's leaks everywhere. There's a leak there. There's a $5 leak there. You know, they, they, but but you don't know where, the, I'm telling you, Don, Don is right. You don't know where those leaks are. People cannot identify them. It's too many things. It could be Amazon. Amazon could be the leak, right? It could be it could be the corner, uh, you know, bakery. Uh, every day you stop by, you know, there there are those leaks, and until you identify them, you can't fix it. So what Don's talking about being able to put it together, but once you know, once you can identify and say, ah, that's where the leak is, then then you can come up with a corrective action plan. And until that point, it's no sense in investing because you're going to start a plan and you're going to say, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then you're going to be like, wow, I don't have the money to do this. And I always tell my clients, pay yourself first, right? Then once you do that, that's what's left over. Don't pay everybody and then say, wow, I don't have anything in terms of my own investment objectives because believe me uh, uh, time flies very quickly I remember in 88 I had a nice head of hair you know it was moving quickly I'm moving a little slower now and the hair has disappeared so time can be your enemy or your friend so it's important that you uh, uh, fix things and be proactive in your approach and that line item on your budget called miscellaneous is an absolutely critical line there will be some expenses, whether you like it or not, you can't help. And so having that little slush fund that you can dip into to kind of cover that overage is going to be critically important. You should not be maxing out every dime that you're collecting in terms of a budget. Leave something on the side that you could either say, you know what, an emergency has come up, I can address it, or the emergency did not come up, I have some excess fund, let me reach out to Mitch and try to uh, invest that. But you need that contingency expense or miscellaneous expense line. Any questions from the floor? Do you use any apps like Mint or any, um, like, do, do you find that more, more useful or more practical or any? Like what, what, do you, what do you recommend? It's funny you should ask. Again, remember, I'm a CPA, right? So everything about me is accounting. And I'm also very time efficient. So I need uh, systems. I use QuickBooks. And it works exceptionally well. It's internet-based. I can sit here, and as long as I have internet access, I can see everything going on dynamically. Let me also share a point. Just, again, personal tips, right? I have alerts for everything. So, you know, I have a credit card and my uh, um, um, Easy Pass. My daughter jumps in my car and she's on her way down to Washington, D.C. to um, um, go visit her boyfriend. Bop! I see a, 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 a toll hit my account. <laughs> Boom, she hits another toll. I'm like, okay, all right. She's on her way. <laughs> 
you know, listen, it's important because at the end of the day, so it's a family affair, right? We have to recognize it's not just about us. It's my daughter taking my car and heading down to DC to hang out with her boyfriend. It's my daughter, other daughter heading up to Boston. They use our cars, right? The top of millennials. My older daughter lives in Manhattan. And when she is ready to get her car, she just calls up the house and says, Mom, I'm borrowing your car, figure it out. You know, and then my wife and I now try to kind of, you know, use one car while they're heading off to Boston or something like that. But even on the tolls, we have budgets, right? So when they start going with budgets, call up, honey, you know what? You're going to have to reimburse me for a portion of this because <laughs> I'm not paying this $50 that you went on one trip uh, to Boston and suddenly um, I'm responsible for it. So it's important that, for me at least, that you have alerts. American Express, that's the only card I have. It's a charge card to Mitch's point. At the end of the month, I have the ability to use the money for 30 days. At the end of the month, you have to pay it in full, right? So it forces me to make sure I pay my bill on time, right? Number one, number two, again, I can't emphasize the points system. It, 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 that's money wasted if uh, you're not taking advantage of that. So even on my cards, if there is a, and my girls will do this, they'll buy something, but they'll alert me, because they know if I see something pop up on an alert and I'm not aware of it, I'm calling up folks, right? So, you know, she may be buying a textbook or something like that using my American Express. I just want to know in advance that you're going to be doing that so it doesn't surprise me. Fraud is rampant. So you can't be buying something in Oregon when I'm sitting in New York on my credit card you need to kind of let me know. So uh, they'll alert me, they go ahead, they buy this stuff, I see it coming through, I'm okay. But the alerts are terribly important in that regard. Questions from the floor? Hold on, before we go to the question, I just want to just touch on a little bit. Uh, so, so QuickBooks is excellent, need to go to a QuickBooks. There are a lot of apps, like I just went through my app store and I saw like every, every dollar easy budgeting app. View, it says track, view, manager budget, set. And it's a free app, so anything. Slow motion is better than no motion, right? So as long as you're doing it, you get started. And then once you get started, even with investments, once you get started, then you can, can graduate from that. So you, may, you can probably just start with a budgeting app, right? There's some reviews, and you can just, if you don't like it, just delete it and just do it, use another one, right? But the fact of you doing it, at least it gets you started. And then you realize this works or this doesn't work. And also some of your, if you have a bank account, some of the bank apps may have a budgeting component already in there, so you can probably leverage that as right. well. The key is just start, and then you can expand from there. And even if you don't have an app, write it down on paper. It may sound old-fashioned, but I'm telling you, if you put it on paper, to Mitch's point earlier, and you literally keep all the receipts and track those receipts, you'd be surprised at the things that you're spending money on that you weren't thinking of at the time you did it. And when it, it's, it adds up, you went out and you bought one item here, $10, it sounds good, but over a month you may have purchased 10 of those items. And you think you purchased two or three, and it so happens that when you do the math, you realize you're in this situation. I have a client who um, had this massive expenditure in Christmas gifts on credit card, and to this day, she's still paying off the bill from last Christmas. Sure. That shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen. Next question. Thank you for 
having this meeting. I'm not a member here, so I just wanted to thank all of you guys. I appreciate it a lot. Um, I, I have friends who, uh, you know, we're talking about money, but one of the most important things in lives are relationships. And I have a lot of friends who um, get to the point where their parents are passing away. And I also have friends who are attorneys. And one of the things that they, they tell me is, is a big deal is when the parents pass away, they leave the house to the kids. And now from that point on, you know, the kids can't agree and they, the relationships are broken permanently for the rest of their lives. People that were close for 50, 60 years are now enemies. So, um, and I've seen it happen. Um, and I have a friend actually who's living in a house right now. She's 65 years old. Um, she has three or four siblings. One of them is actually a very, very, you know, highfalutin person. You've mentioned the name of the company that he runs, global company. Um, so he said to them, okay, you guys take care of the house. I don't care. I don't want any piece of it. But the other three siblings are like, you know, we earn six figures a year, but I still want my money. So this woman who's living in the house spent the last 10 years of her life. She gave up her career to take care of her aging parents. One died, then the other one died. And they said, I want my money. Sell the house. You know, so... So she is now living in a house that's empty. It has nothing but bedroom furniture, no chair to sit in, no sofa, nothing, because she thought the house was going to sell and it didn't sell. Okay, and the children are fighting, you know, they're having difficulty with their... So, so um, what do you do in a situation like that? I mean, the, a lot of the attorneys that I know say, um, sell the house first before you pass along, or put it into some kind of a situation where the children are not making the decisions. Um, and the other part is, if you do have an a, a elderly or disabled relative that one person is taken care of and the other children are not, how do you protect that person financially as well as legally um, so that when the time comes, no one's coming after them to get their money back? So this is a very common scenario. The first thing that I would say is, so to, the last question that you asked is, what can you do for the caregiver parent, uh, uh, child, right? So this actually touches on Medicaid planning, right? So under the state of New York, you can actually pass the deed to that individual who's the caregiver that's living at home. And what that ends up doing inevitably is you can qualify your parent for Medicaid as an offset, okay? Now, there would have to be a separate agreement with the children regarding the sale of that property when, when they die, when, when, when the, the, the person who needs care dies. It's not the, the ideal situation, but it's, it's one way that you can plan for it, which is I'm gonna, this person who's living there is gonna live there, she's offsetting my mom's medical costs, she's taking care of her, and then we're going to split that up the money now in terms of how we're going to allocate it with a contract and then we identify who is the relative that's going to take care of it. Now there are inherent problems in that including not honoring an agreement and the fact that some of the other children may say well why are you putting the house in mom's you know in your name and not mom's and there, 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 there are scenarios like that. The other big thing is this I have dealt with a lot of educated families and the family that you described is highly educated. It's sort of a, like my business partner says, your greatest quality or attribute could be your worst one. When you care too much, you care a little too much and it causes problems. When you're too smart, sometimes you outsmart yourself. So in this case, this family needs to sit down and have a heart to heart. And they need to be rational about it. You want your money, but this person took care of mom. But you also got to live there rent free. 
So both of them have to come up with an idea in their mind that, you know, you've, you're getting this opportunity. To, you were living here rent-free with mom. You made that choice. And at the same time, your other relatives are entitled to something. We have to have flexibility. The problem is that when people go to lawyers when there's a dispute, the lawyer has the intention to make you continue to dispute things. And you've got to wake up to the reality that you need. And I, and I say this not as a, as a tool to pander to people. You need a bit of faith. You really do. You have to wake up to a reality. It's, you can't control everything. And it's not always about the money. It's about figuring out family's important, this, that, and the other thing. There are qualities that you need to, to be thinking about. So when talking to a lawyer in this kind of situation, you want the right incentives and the right punishments if you don't comply. So in the case of the relative that's living in the house that doesn't want to leave, maybe it's, you know what, I'm going to give you an extra 50000 for you to get out and find some other place. But if you don't, someone's going to be appointed, and they're going to evict you, and they're going to seek a judgment. And then you're going to ultimately settle because no one deals well with, uh, with, with punishments and judgments, right? It's because it hurts your credit and this, that, and the other thing. But you need the appropriate incentive schemes. What most people do is the same thing they do in divorces. He wants to give you only 30%. You don't want to take his dog. Take the dog. Do it. Just take, take the dog. What are you bickering about? A dog? Or you know what? He can't see his kids. Or she can't see her kids. You know, like uh, Michael Strahan and the children with the, the equestrian stuff. Michael Strahan didn't think twice about the, those horseback riding that he gave his daughter. Because now they, his wife wants $550,000 for all that cost. It's silly disputes about nothing. So when you go to a lawyer, you have to have a clear mind. And I think in this case, they need to find the clear mind. And then sell it. <laughs> we, actually, we actually have a, a question that was handed in. And I think, Lisa, you have a question? All right, we'll get to you next. All right, uh, if you have large credit card debt, and that would be $10,000 or more, uh, do you recommend debt consolidation or pay a debt recovery program? Sean, I can talk, uh, speak to that. Um, I'm not a proponent of a debt consolidation program. It's kind of like what um, Phil just said a while ago. I assume that most people are in it to make income, right? So you should expect that they're going to be looking to get paid and that more than likely, or more frequently than not, is the incentive for wanting to work with you. Um, you really want to just reach out to the bank directly and try to negotiate better terms. You can do exactly what the debt consolidator is looking to do. I mean, I can't tell you many times, um, I've done that uh, for clients and, and banks, when you alert them in advance, are willing to work with you. So I would start there, and if you can't, um, if you're not successful in an effort, a debt consolidator is gonna do the same thing. Make sure you find somebody who's reputable and will work with you in the interest of what you call a fiduciary um, responsibility that actually have your best interest in mind and not a fee in mind. So personally, I'm not a big believer in debt consolidators. I believe in just calling the bank myself. So, so I, I would agree with Don wholeheartedly. Um, so if, with everything that you've heard here, the, the underlying word is discipline. If you lack discipline, it doesn't make a difference. Like, everything we tell you, if you have no discipline, 
it doesn't make a difference. Because guess what? You're going to go back to doing what you did before. So what difference does it make? So a debt consolidator, you're paying somebody to control it for you, technically. Right? Because you can do it yourself, but you don't have the discipline to control yourself. So you lack the self-control. So I need to pay you to control me to, to pay. So that's technically what's happening, right? So if it's... A, 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 a lot of what a lot of a lot of what I should is just communicated from a practical standpoint, right? So let's say if you owe ten thousand dollars, let's say it's on four credit cards, they're not going to be necessarily twenty five, twenty five, twenty five, twenty five. It's going to be five thousand, fifteen hundred, right? And it's going to add up. So what you come up with a again, it's discipline because budgeting takes a lot of discipline. You come up with a plan, and the plan could be, okay, I want to pay the. The, the, either the card with the highest interest first, but if that card happens to be the one with the... It, it, so there's two schools of thought. One is, let me pay off the lowest amount first because the fact of paying that card... So let's say, if, let's say I pay the minimums on three cards and let's say one card is 1500 So instead of paying uh, $250 on each card, which is 1000 I can potentially pay minimums on the other three cards and satisfy that card in two months if I put the rest of the money that I would have allocated to the other cards just that I caught. So now I'm down to three cards. Okay. So now psychologically it gives you the feeling of, of success. I put a stake in the ground and then you attack the next card. So that's one way of doing it. Or you do the same concept but you take the highest interest card first pay the minimums on the lowest interest cards, and take the money that you would have allocated and pay it to the highest interest card. And then, that, that's, that's a better way, but it could potentially be a longer way. So, so um, then, when it, then when that's satisfied, it gives you the same type of success and feeling, and then you go on to the next. But with all that being said, you still have to have the discipline not to keep spending on the card and not to take out more cards, because when you pay it off, Credit cards come and say, yeah, I like you. Here's four more. And then he said, oh, man, I'm the man. I'm okay. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Thank you, brother. We have one last question, and then we're going to close. My question is, so you guys represent a wealth of knowledge on different topics. How would you suggest that we individually could just keep learning and growing in some of the knowledge areas that you shared with us today? I know um, with the attorney on the panel, some of what you shared is very, I think anyway, like lawyer specific. You need to speak to a lawyer on that. But maybe there are, I don't know if you guys have handouts or you would suggest certain, just certain um, books, you know, what would you, what would you suggest just to continue with the seeds that have been planted today? I mean, if, if I had a suggestion, it would be, um, if you're, I, I, you know, Oddly enough, I guess lawyers are supposed to read a lot. I enjoy reading a lot. So one thing that I would say is get off the entertainment on your phone and start getting knowledge. It's out there. This world that we live in, there is so much information. The question is, do you really want to sit down and learn it? And most people want entertainment. It's just, it's just a fact. We're always on our phones. How many, how many hours do you spend on your phone now? It, the phone is so, com it's so common now that you spend two hours on a screen each day just doing this, horsing around, Netflixing and stuff. So I would say there's so many investment magazines. There's you know, uh, Investor Business Daily. There's the Wall Street Journal. 
um, you want to have to you want to read serious publications about things so you can understand the world around you and then there's all kinds of different organizations and companies whether it's AI, AIG or uh, New York Life or a lot of these banks that they come out with materials about what's going on. In terms of the legal stuff, I mean, I have a handout here uh, for you that just explains the basic parts. Yes, you're right. A lot of the lawyer stuff, you have to go to a lawyer to understand the nature of the problem because everybody has a different kind of problem. Uh, but you can learn a lot about what a will is just by looking it up you can learn a lot about taxes, basic tax stuff that you should be thinking about. What is capital gains? How does it impact me when mom dies? Just type that into Google. People put it in more incoherent sentences and you still get the right answer. You know, it's like they don't even use vowels. You feel like you're talking to a Russian guy. There's no odd, I want, will, and I need now. You know? <laughs> and, and, and you just read about those things, and then you start piecing together, and then you can have a meaningful discussion. One of the most common things is, what do I, how do I prepare for a funeral? What's a funeral burial fund? Let's just do the basics, because you don't have any money. How do I have my body buried so the people at the funeral don't look at my open casket? That guy, what a, I don't like this guy. You don't, you don't want one of those situations. So that, that's what I say, just, just read some more established publications and use the internet for what it's supposed to be, which is knowledge. Yeah, yeah just quickly also, um, wealth of information out here. A lot of organizations now, they do the consultations to sit down. Uh, it's no cost, right? Um, ultimately, you know, we're all in business. But there's a lot of times you have to educate people to a certain point, and then when they're ready, they make those decisions and they, and they recognize that you came and you shared your time and you gave as much information as possible. And I've had clients call me back years later and say, you know what, I found your card and now I'm, you know, now I'm ready, I had to get my house in order. So, so, so everyone on the panel, there's processes, but ultimately uh, um, you can do some self-learned stuff yourself. Uh, but you know, there's there's consultations that you can also uh, get involved in, and you know, help that knowledge base also. So, um, Sean and I spend a lot of time with clients, uh, primarily around preparing their tax returns, and I, I take a lot of pride. I'm sure he feels the same way around um, tax planning or financial planning. Keyword is planning, and so we'll sit with someone and try to understand what are you trying to do over the next 12 months. Hey, guess what? I'm looking to buy a house. I'm renting right now. Okay, well, as we're doing your tax return, we can actually set you up so that when the time comes 12 months from now, you're ready to be able to buy um, the house, whether it be your credit score or your down payment and so on and so forth, and kind of set you up that way. It's, it's not just coming into our office and filling out forms and you're off on your way because we did your return. We're trying to help you become financially empowered. And I'm going to leave you one last comment, and that is um, I um, bought a car recently. My, my daughter um, needed, she's going to Hofstra, and so she needs a car to get around. So I essentially gave her my car, and I went out and got a new car. Access to the internet is probably the most revolutionary thing in my lifetime. And so I read up and learned so much about the car business. By the time I was done, two car dealers threw me out, and I ended up getting that car at cost, right? 
because I knew their system inside out. And you know what's sad? There's so many multiple ways for them to trip you up that I was pretty mad by the time I was done with, with okay, you're gonna, we're gonna give you the car at this price, but then we're gonna make it up in the, in the after sale. Or we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna not make it up in the after sale, but we won't give you this manufacturer's discount. And so by the time I was done, I got all the knowledge and I shopped it, maybe about four or five Toyota dealerships, I knew their system inside out. The guy turns to me and says, I got a family to take care of. I said, well, you know, you're gonna gouge someone else, but it's not me, all right? And so take, take advantage of the internet, learn as much as you can, to the point Phil made earlier, I'm not a big believer in jumping on and playing Scrabble. You know, I wanna know how do I do X? You know, I'm working on something, I need, if I'm gonna be reading, I'm gonna be reading, how do I figure out to get from point A to point B? And so it's all about practicality for me when it comes to the research. Highly recommend the internet as a source for information. Really, really, really beneficial. Um, I notice there are certain things that you, as a pastor, that when you do for the congregation, you have a greater res response than other things, you know? So if I were to have a party, food catered, it, it, you know, the room would be filled, but you know, this, we're trying to educate people and, and, and then I get the counseling sessions of everything you guys just went through today. So, ah, what are you gonna say? <laughs> I like to really, let's give these men another hand, please. Um, I really appreciate the fact you guys, you know, um, this, this would have been very expensive had we had to pay for it. Uh, let me just say this. Some of us need accountants and, and attorneys. Sean has been in our life for a while now. He's, he's, the first, he's the person that got us our first loan. And he came highly recommended by my accountant who I've had for God knows, probably 30 something, 40 years. And, um, and he, my, my accountant who I trust like, my, like a, a, a brother, he recommended Sean and, and, and Sean pulled it together and got us our, our money and, and helped us to get a mortgage. Uh, it, it was for this building, yes, it was just amazing. So that relationship brings other relationships. And if you need any of these men sitting on here, I am sure these are men of integrity or they wouldn't be around him or he wouldn't be around them. So, so, so I'm, if you need an attorney, you need an accountant, and I, and I kind of know my brother here a little bit, and you, you need somebody, these guys are available. Just get their card and, 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 uh, and go with it. You can trust Sean, you can trust your pastor's word. And if it comes up any other way, you let me know. <laughs> I am grateful that you came out today. We're launching a series on money here in our church after I finish what I'm gonna be teaching tomorrow. So we're gonna be going into money. We're gonna be re-bringing Financial uh, uh, Peace University back in December. So we're on this money thing to try to empower the church and get you guys, because I knew much of what he said already. It's about time for the recession to hit and, and we need to be prepared, okay? Not to be fearful, 
Because when you have when you have knowledge, you have power. Amen. So again, we thank you guys for coming so much. Uh, uh, he has some handouts that he's going to give to you. Uh, let's all stand and just be prepared to go. Father, we thank you for our time together. It's been rich. We pray for these men, Lord God, in their success, even in their businesses. Bless their businesses. God, we thank you even now for the time they've sown into us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the empowerment that we've received today. Take us from this place, never from your presence. And when we arrive at our various places of residence, we thank you for the peace that will meet us at the door. We ask you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Come on, give them another hand. Amen. <laughs>